Welcome back to Roshcast for episode 47. I'm Nachi. And I'm Mega, and we're back with some more high-yield emergency medicine board review. Let's kick off this episode with a rapid review of antibiotic prophylaxis of Neisseria meningitidis. This is an important topic, both for your personal safety and clinical practice, as well as for your exam preparation. Neisseria meningitidis is highly contagious, and antibiotic prophylaxis is indicated for close contacts of the patient, including those in contact with secretions, as well as members of the same household or daycare center. Healthcare workers with close contact with the patient's secretions should also receive prophylaxis. So you have three options for prophylaxis. Rifampin is administered at a dose of 10 mg per kilogram, with a max dose of 600 mg every 12 hours for four doses, and this is about 100% effective. You can also give ceftriaxone 250 mg IM for one dose, which is 97 to 100% effective. And the third option, which is the least effective, is ciprofloxacin at 500 mg PO for one dose, and that comes in at 90 to 95% effective. Even though rifampin is the most effective, be wary of its side effects, which include turning secretions like tears in urine orange. Contact lens wearers should be warned of permanent staining. All right, let's get to some questions. A 33-year-old woman presents to the ED with agitation and severe respiratory distress. According to her son, she's been taking a lot of pain medications for her lower back pain. The patient is complaining about her ears ringing. Her vital signs show a blood pressure of 100 over 60, a heart rate of 140, a respiratory rate of 35, and a temperature of 100.1. Which of the following complications is she at risk of developing? Is it A, hemodynamically significant lower gastrointestinal bleeding, B, increased intracranial pressure, C, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, or D, urinary retention requiring catheterization? This patient is exhibiting signs and exam findings consistent with chronic aspirin toxicity, which puts her at risk for answer choice C, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, which is defined as radiographic evidence of alveolar fluid accumulation without hemodynamic evidence of a cardiogenic etiology. Non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema has many potential etiologies, but for this question, you have to bear in mind the drug etiologies, such as salicylates, opioids, naloxone, fencyclidine, and meprobamate. Patients with acute salicylate toxicity with levels greater than 100 mg per deciliter and chronic toxicity with levels greater than 60 require dialysis. Salicylate toxicity causing non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, like in our patient, is also an indication for dialysis. Let's go over the other answer choices also. Choice A, hemodynamically significant lower GI bleeding, that's not commonly seen with chronic aspirin toxicity. Choice B, increased intracranial pressure, that's also not a common hallmark of aspirin toxicity. And choice D, urinary retention requiring catheterization, they're describing a common presentation and complication of anticholinergic toxicity there. Let's double down on tox for another one. Which of the following is associated with carbon monoxide poisoning? Is it A, bilateral basal ganglia hypodensities, B, elevated pH, C, low PO2, or D, odor of bitter almonds? Let's use a process of elimination for this one. Odor of bitter almonds, that's definitely a cyanide poisoning, so answer choice D is wrong. Answer choice C is incorrect also because PO2 is normal in carbon monoxide toxicity as PO2 reflects dissolved oxygen, which is unchanged in carbon monoxide poisoning. And for choice B, elevated pH, carbon monoxide poisoning actually causes a metabolic acidosis by anaerobic metabolism, so the pH should be low, not high. 
So the answer here by process of elimination must be choice A, bilateral basal ganglia hypodensities. But why is that? Well, carbon monoxide poisoning can cause neurologic sequelae like hypodensities in the basal ganglia. They can be identified radiographically within 12 hours of exposure. And although a normal initial head CT scan predicts a favorable outcome, these changes, if found within 24 hours of the poisoning, are associated with poor outcomes. A typical clinical presentation of carbon monoxide poisoning is the right story along with headache, nausea, vomiting, loss of consciousness, and even hypoxia or chest pain, so keep all of that in mind. And treatment of carbon monoxide poisoning involves securing the airway and applying high-flow oxygen. Hyperbaric oxygen may be indicated when carbon monoxide levels are greater than 25% if there is severe metabolic acidosis, concern for end-organ ischemia, or if the patient experiences loss of consciousness. Know that the threshold for pregnant patients is different and you should consider hyperbaric oxygen if the level is greater than 15%, not 25%. All right, let's move on to my least favorite chief complaint in the ED, dizziness. A 62-year-old woman presents to the emergency department with dizziness that started three days ago. She describes the event as a spinning sensation that's worse with position changes, with each episode lasting less than a day. The dizziness is associated with hearing loss, tinnitus, and vomiting. On physical exam, she has decreased hearing on the left. Head CT and brain MRI are both negative. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, acoustic neuroma, B, labyrinthitis, C, Meniere's disease, or D, vestibular neuritis? These questions can be tough, but there's a classic triad they're describing here. If you missed it, the triad is episodic vertigo, sensory neural hearing loss, and tinnitus. This is the triad for choice C, Meniere's disease. You're right, that is the most likely diagnosis here. But in order to make the diagnosis, the patient should have the following. Two spontaneous episodes of rotational vertigo lasting 20 minutes or longer, but less than a full day, audiometric confirmation of sensory neural hearing loss, and tinnitus. The exact cause of Meniere's disease is unknown, but it is thought to be due to excessive fluid in the inner ear. Treatment includes low-salt diet, diuretics, intratympanic injections of gentamicin or dexamethasone, and avoidance of possible precipitants like caffeine, smoking, and alcohol. Surgery is also an option for chronic, severe, and disabling cases. In the acute setting in the emergency department, the part most relevant to most of our listeners, treat with benzodiazepines like diazepam, which has sedative effects on the limbic system, thalamus, and hypothalamus. Anticholinergics like meclizine, diphenhydramine, promethazine, and prochlorperazine can also help as they act on the neurons of the vestibular system. All right, it's time for a pelvic exam. A 28-year-old woman with a history of recurring aptus ulcers of the mouth presents with several painful ulcers in the vaginal area. Physical exam shows multiple 0.5 centimeter to 1.5 centimeter oval ulcers with sharply defined borders and a yellowish-white membrane. She denies recent sexual activity. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, Bessette syndrome, B, herpes simplex, C, reactive arthritis, or D, syphilis? I saw this once during residency. The correct answer here is choice A, Bessette syndrome. Bessette syndrome presents with recurring genital and oral ulcerations and relapsing uveitis. The genital and oral ulcers are painful with an acrotic center and surrounding red rim. Treatment includes corticosteroids for acute manifestations and cytotoxic medications for patients with ocular, CNS, and vascular involvement. Let's go over the other answer choices. Choice B, 
herpes simplex virus that presents as uniformly shaped painful vesicles that crust and heal without scarring, not what they're describing here. Choice C, reactive arthritis, that is an aseptic inflammatory polyarthritis preceded by non-gonococcal urethritis or infectious dysentery, but there are no genital ulcers. And choice D, syphilis, that's associated with a solitary non-tender genital chancre and doesn't present with oral ulcers, so can't be the correct answer here. Your next patient is here and was sent straight over from the dialysis center. A 65-year-old man on peritoneal dialysis presents because his dialysis effluent is cloudy. You sent it for culture and gram staining, which returns with a preliminary result of gram-positive cocci and clusters. Other than some abdominal ascites, his vital signs and physical exam are unremarkable. Which of the following is the most appropriate management for this condition? Is it A, inpatient management with antibiotics and temporary hemodialysis? B, inpatient management with IV antibiotics? C, outpatient management with intraperitoneal antibiotics? Or D, outpatient management with oral antibiotics? This patient has peritonitis, which is the most common complication of peritoneal dialysis. Peritonitis caused secondary to peritoneal dialysis is much less severe than other forms of peritonitis and can be managed with answer choice C, outpatient management with intraperitoneal antibiotics. The antibiotics should be given for 10 to 14 days. The majority of cases of peritonitis are caused by staph aureus or staph epidermidis. Diagnosis is made by noting cloudiness of the dialysis effluent, and it's then confirmed by presence of more than 100 white blood cells in the peritoneal fluid, with more than 50% being neutrophils, or with a positive gram stain, as in this case. Going over the other answer choices, choice A, inpatient management with antibiotics and temporary hemodialysis, that's not required in this case, or in most cases, outpatient management is appropriate. Think inpatient if there is hemodynamic instability or signs of systemic illness. Also, if patients have recurrent episodes of failure of intraperitoneal antibiotics, they may require inpatient treatment for transient hemodialysis while their catheter is replaced. Choice B, inpatient management with IV antibiotics, and choice D, outpatient management with oral antibiotics, are not recommended as the goal is direct therapy into the peritoneal cavity. Yeah, knowing that the ideal treatment in a hemodynamically stable patient is direct therapy in the peritoneal cavity is definitely the key here. Do you know how often patients on peritoneal dialysis develop peritonitis? Interesting question, and I'm not sure, but maybe every one to two years? Great guess. It's actually about one episode every 15 to 18 months. All right, we're on the last question of this episode. Which of the following historical features is most consistent with infantile spasms? Is it A, occur in clusters lasting a few minutes at a time? B, occur more frequently during sleep? C, onset between 12 and 18 months of age? Or D, precipitated by loud noises or handling? Tough pediatric question here, and you really just have to know it. So let's define infantile spasms. This is an epileptic disorder that presents before the age of one. So right away we know that answer choice C is incorrect, which said onset is between 12 and 18 months. The spasms consist of rapid, symmetric, and synchronous flexor and extensor movements that involve the neck, trunk, and extremities. These actually do occur in clusters lasting a few minutes at a time. So the correct answer here is choice A. Just to finish going over the other answer choices, Infantile spasms occur while the patient is awake or upon arousal, so answer choice B, occurring more frequently during sleep, is incorrect. And answer choice D, precipitated by loud noises or handling, is simply just not right. And of note, neurodevelopmental delay is evident in most children with infantile spasms. 
The EEG shows hypsarrhythmia, characterized by high-voltage slow waves and disorganized spike activity. The first-line treatment in the U.S. is corticotropin. Vigabitrin is an anti-seizure medication that is also used to treat infantile spasms. All right, let's close out this episode with some rapid review. Salicylates, opioids, naloxone, fencyclidine, and meprobamate can cause non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Patients with acute salicylate toxicity with levels greater than 100 mg per deciliter and chronic toxicity with levels greater than 60 mg per deciliter require dialysis. Neurologic sequelae from carbon monoxide poisoning can be identified radiographically within 12 hours of exposure as symmetric hypodense lesions in the basal ganglia. Meniere's disease is a set of episodic symptoms including vertigo, hearing loss, tinnitus, and a sense of fullness in the ear. Episodes last anywhere from 20 minutes to 4 hours. Bichette syndrome presents as recurring genital and oral ulcerations and also relapsing uveitis. Peritonitis is the most common complication of peritoneal dialysis and treated with intraperitoneal antibiotics as an outpatient. Infantile spasms present before the age of 1 and the EEG shows hypsarrhythmia. This is treated with corticotropin. So that wraps up Roshcast episode 47. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast, and you can always email us at Roshcast at RoshReview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. You can also help us pick questions by identifying ones you'd like us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality reviews.